Good morning. It is good to be back with you and in this sanctuary in three dimensions for the first time in a while. It's good to be here with my dear colleague, Reverend Chris Jablonski, who has, since his arrival in Belmont, been working to strengthen the connection and the bonds between between us, between Belmont and the Unitarian Universalist Urban Ministry. And I'm grateful to him for his warm welcome this morning. He is seeking to build on the history uh, that exists between us, a history that includes all the ways that Belmont has sustained our work. You were the congregation that helped to found our first computer lab for our after-school program. You were the congregation that helped to renovate our kitchen Uh, Your men's group has helped come and lead cookouts for our youth program. There are uh, wonderful supporters among you, like Martha Spaulding and Nancy and Mark Davis, the Landfreeds, Ethel and Charles Heyman, Nanny and Eric Almquist, Paul Santos and Ann Stewart, the Ellsworth, and our wonderful delegates to the Urban Ministry, Michael Collins, Nancy Davis, and Sean Westgate. So it is good to be able to be here and see your faces and to update you on the work that you support at the Urban Ministry and to tell you about the work that's ahead. And I want to begin this morning with a story. And it's a hard story. It's the story of the exact moment when I knew that I had been shaped by racism. I was 18, playing soccer in gym class my first semester in college. I tore down the field with drive and purpose and kicked the ball hard toward the goal and right into the shins of an opposing player. And my fierceness turned in a flash into fear. Not because I'd hit the shins of a fellow player, that was common, but because my opponent, also a college student, was black, and I feared her reaction. I skidded to a stop, apologized profusely, my fierceness evaporating into thin air, and she, who I did not know, she, the most soft-spoken of young women, said, oh, it's fine, don't worry, it's fine. And it was that, that split second of fear colliding with gentleness, the upending of my reaction by her soft kindness that jogged loose what I had not seen in myself and was forced to see. My reaction was racist. I feared her and her response to my drive to the shins because she was black. I'd been shaped by racism, and I didn't know how that had happened. I grew up in an overwhelmingly white farming town in upstate New York. My sports teams were all white, my 4-H club white, my friends, my neighbors. I didn't see black people, and I thought racism had been settled in the 60s. So how had it happened? This fear, this, the gift of that confusing moment was that I glimpsed that I had absorbed racism without knowing it. We are shaped by stories and untruths rendered invisible and by a history that's been covered over. 
Our biases form through a million images from the movies and TV, like the gradual building of a drip sandcastle, one small handful of sand at a time. These shape our inner landscape. Our outer landscape has been shaped by racism too, by policies paired with bias. Courts and schools, where we live and who does not live there. Despite all of it, for white people, it's easy not to see it or to ignore it. And so the question is, what is asked of us then as people of faith? How do we bring into focus something that is so easily blurred? In 2021, the Urban Ministry embraced a new mission statement, which calls us to work across race and place to dismantle racism and white supremacy culture and to advance racial, social, and economic justice. It's a call that inspires, but it's daunting. How do we do that? So the Urban Ministry, for those of you who are less familiar to us, is a 190-year-old organization now based in Roxbury, the historic heart of Boston's black community. We're grounded in our UU faith values and encircled by UU member congregations like Belmont. We've done many things through our history. Today, we provide programs for trauma survivors, after-school programming for high school students, and cultural engagement in the Roxbury community we serve. We embark now on a mission that will call us to do more, to do more to directly confront the racism that means that the average Roxbury resident lives 30 years less than a resident of White Back Bay just one mile away. The means that black college students leave before, before graduation at much higher rates than their white counterparts the legacy that means that the household wealth of white Bostonians exponentially outstrips that of black Bostonians, our new mission statement will call for new strategies and new programs to confront this legacy. And it will take a deeper commitment by our member congregations. And so I'm here asking for your help to live into that mission. It will take all of us, and also all of us, our head, our hands, and our hearts, to do this work. Our heads help us to learn the history of race in the United States. The African-American author James Baldwin said, History, as nearly no one seems to know, is not merely something to be read. And it does not refer merely or even principally to the past. On the contrary, the great force of history comes from the fact that we carry it within us, are unconsciously controlled by it in many ways, and history is literally present in all we do, he said. We are called to learn that history. The African-American attorney and activist Brian Stevenson, graduate of Harvard, tells the story of sitting in a courtroom as a defense attorney. And he said, 
The judge and the prosecutor entered through a door in the back of the courtroom, laughing and chatting. When the judge saw me sitting at the defense table, he said to me harshly, Hey, you shouldn't be in here without counsel. Go back outside and wait in the hallway until your lawyer arrives. I stood up and smiled broadly, and I said, Oh, I'm sorry. Your Honor, we haven't met. My name is Brian Stevenson. I'm the lawyer on the case set for hearing this morning. The judge laughed at his mistake, and the prosecutor joined in. I forced myself to laugh because I didn't want my young client, a white child who'd been prosecuted as an adult, to be disadvantaged. He said, but I was disheartened by the experience. Of course, innocent mistakes occur, but constantly being underestimated, suspected, accused, watched, doubted, distrusted, presumed guilty, and even feared is a burden borne by people of color that can't be understood or confronted without a deeper conversation about our history of racial injustice, he said. The prison system, the wealth gap, the health gap, the reaction that I had to my classmate on the soccer field can be understood only by examining our history, by becoming conscious of the legacy that we have inherited that began with the arrival of the first kidnapped Africans on these shores by reading articles like the New, the New York Times 1619 Project or books like The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. We need our heads for this work. But anyone frustrated by endless book clubs about white fragility knows that we also need to work for change. We need action, and there are abundant ways. At the Urban Ministry, we address the racial wealth gap by highlighting black-owned businesses in Roxbury. We make commercials about them, posting them on our Community Conversations webinars, and we encourage our UU congregations to support them. We launched the Roxbury Artist Amplification Project, showcasing artists of color through video galleries, and we created a catalog of their work, encouraging UUs to support them. We connect UUs from our member congregations with partner organizations that are fighting for racial justice, those resisting displacement caused by gentrification, those working for environmental justice, for educational equity. We need our hands. We need action. But even that isn't enough. We also need our hearts to be in this. We need relationships across difference because relationships are the catalyst for real change. An awakened heart stays the course. Two years ago, police killed an unarmed African-American man named George Floyd, and it was a death that reignited the Black Lives Matter movement across the world. UU congregations like this one gathered in the midst of the most severe part of the COVID shutdown to march and demand change. The flames of that movement continue to burn, but we need to ensure that they do not dim, and it's relationships, our hearts, that ensure that. Love makes us steadfast. Love holds us accountable. Love 
gives us the courage to do hard things. The African-American minister and historian, the Reverend Dr. Mark Morrison-Reed, in one of his sermons, tells of how the white clergy came to join Martin Luther King in Selma more than 50 years ago. You use, like, the Reverend James Reeb, Orloff Miller, Clark Olson, Jack Kent. These individuals, Morrison Reed writes, came to Selma not because of what they knew about segregation. It was because of the relationships they had. Reverend James Reeb, who was killed by white supremacists during his visit, lived in Dorchester, where his children attended black public schools and where he was immersed in the grassroots empowerment of his African-American neighbors. He knew black people. Morrison Reed writes, Today we assume that the outpouring of support and the rush to Selma was because of the righteousness of the cause and the magnitude of the injustice, but that doesn't fully explain the response, he said. Of course it was because of the cause, but it was relationships that compelled them to go, the connection of one person to another, end quote. And here is our problem. Few places are harder to make a connection across race than Greater Boston. According to the Boston Magazine article, How Has Boston Gotten Away with Being So Segregated for So Long? Of 51 metro areas with significant African-American populations, we are the 15th most segregated. Two-thirds of Boston's black population lives in Roxbury, Dorchester, and Mattapan, and hardly any black people live in the suburbs. That is by design. The article spells out in excruciating detail all the systems that for the past 100 years have ensured home ownership and therefore wealth creation was kept out of the hands of black people and how these systems created a chasm between white people and black people and preventing us from knowing one another, even in 2022. Segregation may not be the law of the land in greater Boston, but look around. We know it's a fact of greater Boston. Over the past century, covenant restrictions and subdivisions and redlining and racist FHA policies and racist HUD policies kept black people out of certain Boston neighborhoods and absolutely out of the suburbs. Here are some examples from the article. In the early 1900s, the first subdivision in Brookline included a racially restrictive covenant, which meant basically that homes couldn't be sold to black people. Eventually, the National Association of Real Estate Boards whose code of ethics discouraged members from introducing black people into white neighborhoods, drafted model covenants like Brookline's and encouraged homeowners associations to adopt them. The FHA was formed in the 1930s and between 1934 and 1962 spent $120 billion on home loans, 98% of which went to white families. These loans were a driver of the exodus from Boston to the suburbs for white people. Quote, because the FHA believed that property values would diminish if black people moved into neighborhoods, its underwriting manual provided a guideline stating 
the property shall continue to be occupied by the same social and racial classes. The agency routinely declined to ensure developments that weren't exclusively white, end quote. By 1970, Boston suburbs, except Cambridge, were 98% white. Meanwhile, as white families moved to the suburbs, black families migrated from the south to Boston and found that the only places they could live were places like Roxbury, a neighborhood where the banks would not make home improvement loans, where the housing was older and which became ripe picking for slumlords. A Brown University researcher was quoted saying that the concept of a black neighborhood as a bad neighborhood comes right out of that process. And we have the story of the bad neighborhood of Roxbury. Brian Stevenson says that to make real change, privileged people need to get proximate, his word, to those who are not privileged. He said, to make a difference in creating a healthier community, a healthier society, a healthier nation, we've got to find a way to get proximate to the poor and the vulnerable. He said, I absolutely believe that when we isolate ourselves, when we allow ourselves to be shielded and disconnected from those who are vulnerable and disfavored, we sustain and contribute to these problems. He said, I am persuaded that in proximity, there is something we can learn about how we change the world, end quote. The fact of our segregation makes that hard to do. And when we are not proximate, when we do not personally feel connected to those who are being disproportionately arrested, incarcerated, killed in police incidents, when we are not connected to the neighborhoods suffering environmental pollution or displacement by gentrification, let's be honest, it is just easier to set it all aside, to put this movement ignited by the death of George Floyd back on the shelf, to reduce it to a fading bumper sticker or a tattered lawn sign. As a woman who is white, I am not immune. So here's what helps keep me going. I told you the story of my soccer field revelation, and I want to tell you another about the gift of proximity. Before I became a minister, I was a newspaper reporter in upstate New York, and my cubicle neighbor in the features department was an African-American woman whose newsroom friends included two other African-American women. These colleagues gathered daily at the desk of my neighbor, chatting, joking, sharing stories that I got to hear and become part of. The dailiness built among us some knowing and some trust. I was then newly vegan and an animal rights activist, and I was assigned a feature story that would mean posting and sharing a recipe that included veal. And after agonizing, I said no. My conscience wouldn't let me. My editors insisted, threatening to fire me, and my fate hung in the balance. And as I recall it, 25 years later, three people rallied around me, none of them vegan. They were these three African-American women, all young, without power in the newsroom hierarchy, 
but they offered to start a petition to defend me. They were willing to put themselves at risk to defend my right of conscience. In a sea of colleagues, most everyone else stepped back. The ones who stepped forward were these three women. They had no interest in animal rights, but they had every interest in standing up for the underdog. And unlike many of my white colleagues, apparently, they didn't assume that those in power were right. I learned a lot from that time, and my friendship with these three women endured long after I had left journalism for ministry. I never forgot the gift of proximity of my seating arrangement. It's a gift that I continue to receive at the urban ministry. Most of our staff are people of color from the communities we serve. So are our program participants, so are our neighbors. I am gifted daily with proximity. At the urban ministry, we think a lot about how to build proximity between our member congregations and our neighborhood. Not proximity by charity, but how to create space for relationships built on listening, learning, trust, respect. These are built over time and with intention. We're seeking not to come in and help Roxbury. We're seeking to learn from Roxbury and to build bridges between suburb and city so that we can work together to make change. There's a quotation on the wall when you enter the urban ministry by the Aboriginal activist Lila Watson, and it says, if you have come here to help me, you are wasting your time. But if you have come because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together. This is what guides us. We organize tours of black-owned businesses and historic tours of the neighborhood. We gather committees and task forces made up of UUs and our neighbors to shape our work. This past autumn, I spent one chilly morning in Roxbury at an event honoring the elders of our neighborhood who'd protected and defended the community against racist neglect through the years. The urban ministry had joined a coalition of groups honoring them with a photographic portrait. I stood there and I felt deep gratitude for the relationships that I've had an opportunity to build, for the opportunity to listen and to build connections. These relationships set my heart on justice for the long haul. Every day we seek ways to introduce, to knit together, to overcome the way the world has divided us so that we can forge relationships that make the change we seek. There's no magic wand for this relationship building, just time and intention and trying and trying again and trying again and listening and learning and listening more. And so my invitation is just this, to continue to do the good work that you do here in this congregation and community, and if you feel called to also connect with the work of the urban ministry, join our mailing list if you're not on it. Reach out for a conversation with our engagement team. See my colleague 
Annie Stubbs, who will be in the hallway after the service today, talk with your urban ministry delegates, Nancy Davis, Michael Collins, and Sean Westgate, for information on how to get involved. Reach out to imagine the gifts that you bring to keep the fires for justice burning and burning brightly. Amen, and may it be so.